There's no one perfect style of leadership. There's no one perfect style of communication. There's a certain archetype that is lionized in the media, right? It's the Steve Jobs kind of swashbuckling entrepreneur who takes no prisoners and kind of is, is very extroverted and, and does things their way or the highway sort of thing. And I tried to be that, but it did not work. That just was not me and it kind of failed miserably. Hello, and welcome to the Founder Shares podcast. We're so happy that you've chosen to spend some time with us. I'm your host, Trevor Schmidt. I'm an attorney at Hutchison, a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina. We work with founders and entrepreneurs in technology and life science companies, start up, operate, get funded, and exit. We are daily inspired by the people we work with and want a chance to share some of these stories with you, our listener. So whether you're already an entrepreneur want to be one someday, or are just fascinated by the stories of how a business goes from idea to success, or not such a success. This podcast is for you. Today's guest is Abhi Lokesh, co-founder and CEO of Fracture. Now, Fracture is a company that prints your photos in vivid color directly onto glass. Like almost all of us, I have a smartphone in my pocket that takes amazing photos. Well, Let's be honest, my wife takes amazing photos. I take mediocre photos with a slight caffeine shake. But with camera phones, what does it matter? I can take 10 to 20 pictures a day without really thinking. According to one online source, it is estimated that there will be 1.4 trillion pictures taken around the world in 2020. But what do we do with these pictures? Cameras and photos are ubiquitous. But when was the last time you actually held a picture in your hand? Abilo Kesh and his partner, Alex Theodore, first noticed this trend back in 2009. We saw a really compelling opportunity in front of us, which was the fact that smartphones were just taking off. They were getting cheaper, more affordable, stronger. And the cameras on those smartphones were also getting uh, more affordable, faster. The resolution was getting better, et cetera. Yet fewer and fewer people were printing pictures, even though more people than ever before were taking pictures. And we thought to ourselves, you know, that's a really interesting paradox and dilemma. Why is that? Why are people printing fewer and fewer of their pictures? We knew that, that no one would ever go back to the days of you know pre-digital you know, printing out your rolls of 35 millimeter film, but we felt like with digital imagery getting so much better in quality, we could give people a reason to print and frame their favorite digital images. And we wanted to create this really compelling product and, and user experience that would make people fall in love with printing and, and framing their favorite photos again. So these two University of Florida students started tinkering with a model to print pictures on glass. And it worked. They knew they had something, and they went for it, even though they were launching a new company right in the middle of the Great Recession. Capital was really hard to come by. I couldn't even pre-qualify for a credit card that normally you get, you know, mailboxes full of pre-qualified credit cards um, in the mail, and I couldn't even get one of those. And we were in Gainesville, Florida as well, which again, didn't have exactly the most well-known support ecosystem for young entrepreneurs um, or young business owners. And so, you know, in many ways we felt lonely because we were kind of isolated trying to do this thing that we weren't very good at explaining, no one could really understand, and took a lot of money. And I think we really just relied on each other for support and you know, we had a healthy dose of naivete and I just think like youthful ignorance to kind of see us through the, the first couple of years. But again, fortunately, we pushed ourselves to have pretty concrete milestones. And the promise of the product was always, in our opinion, so obvious because 
whoever we did show it to uh, would always respond in a, in a really positive way. Now, by no means did we ever really do statistically significant market research. Like we didn't run really intense surveys or focus groups, but we just in, innately believed that this was something that people would really want. And, you know, slowly the sales started to trickle in. It took us a long time, a number of years, but that journey was really important because it just made us appreciate every sale and ultimately helped us get to where we are. And how did you go about kind of expanding those sales channels? Was it primarily through word of mouth or did you ultimately kind of get a sales team together to go out and kind of show people the product and get them excited about it? Yeah, that's actually, Trevor, that's been the hardest part about Fracture. You know, engineering and manufacturing and fulfillment, while tricky, is ultimately a pretty straightforward process. It has certain variables that you can control, et cetera. Like it's a system that you can actually like watch and, and learn from consumer marketing and consumer psychology was really hard for us to figure out. We, again, neither of us came from, you know, marketing or PR backgrounds. We, we really didn't know how to market this product. And that's really where we fumbled the most for the first, I'd say, five years of the business. So honestly, we tried everything. We tried traditional PR. We tried working with Groupon, which was a near fatal disaster. We were on, I believe it was Good Morning America, that did nothing for us. Uh, we tried dabbling in Google and Facebook in the early days, and that wasn't really taking traction as well. But, but we caught a really lucky break in 2013 when we realized that actually video advertising was really powerful for us because in hindsight, you know, it, it always makes sense, and hindsight is always 2020. but the thing that was really powerful about video for us was that it allowed us to show off the product in as close to a real-life format as possible. So... You know, showing someone a picture of a picture, which is ultimately what Fracture is, is really hard to, it's really hard to make a compelling sales pitch that way in, in kind of that 2D format. So video was great because we could rotate a Fracture around, we could show how slim it was, we could show how glossy it was, we could, you know, show some taking it out of the box and hanging it on the wall in a really efficient manner. And that was massive for us. So we were actually, by happenstance, uh, were able to get on a, uh, a small TV show on um, a HGTV sister network called the DIY channel. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a show called I Want That. And basically the producers reached out to us for some samples. You know, we said, sure, why not? All it's going to cost us is the cost of those samples. And unbeknownst to us, they actually liked the product, produced a segment and started airing that segment. We started to see randomly visitors start to come to our website and ultimately we just connected the dots and realized that this TV segment is what was really working for us. So we essentially tried to bottle that and, you know, we were one of the early pioneers in terms of a D2C company, a direct consumer company that invested in, in TV advertising. So hmm. we just evolved that channel and that's become one of our best ways to you know, get customers. Now you said that the Groupon incident was almost a disaster. What went wrong with that? Ah, man, so many things. Um, like everyone, we were really excited about Groupon back in you know, 2010, 2011. You couldn't, you know, throw a stone without hitting a Groupon deal locally. And we were actually one of the first businesses um, in Gainesville to offer a Groupon deal. And we did really well. Groupon was really interested in this market. Uh, ultimately, the economics were really hard. You know, the way Groupon worked was, you know, at least half off, right? So for a $40 order, you know, the, the most we were making is $20. But then uh, Groupon took their cut of the $20 and, you know, they took 60% of that $20 and we were left with 40%. But in addition, the, the straw that broke the camel's back for us was we, was we also offered free shipping. Mm. And that basically put us in the red for every order. 
And that is, <laughs> those unit economics are not sustainable, especially because Groupon customers were not, you know, loyal customers, they were more bargain hunters. And, and that's not a knock on them. That's just kind of the way Groupon uh, trained people to look at their deals. And so um, the lifetime value of those customers was, was non-existent. So long story short, we had, I think, you know, four to 6,000 people buy a bunch of Groupon coupons. That was in summer 2011. And Groupon coupons traditionally had a six-month expiration period. So if you do the math, that meant they all expired in Q4 during the harbor holiday season. Mm. And so in, in the middle of, you know, December 2011, we were flooded by, you know, this cohort of free non-revenue generating Groupon orders that we're expected to fulfill, ship on our own dime. And they, those are actually taking the place of, you know, full paying customers who wanted actual product. And so it was just a challenge in every perspective, from a manufacturing perspective, from a financial perspective, from a customer support perspective. That was just a tough situation to go through. Sure. Now, how did you start to grow your team? I mean, who were some of the first ads to the team to kind of grow the business? I think it, it, it bears emphasizing that, finding the right teammates was what truly catapulted the business in, in the right direction. Ultimately, I think one of, one of the biggest mistakes Alex and I did when it came to hiring was that initially, and I'll, I'll take most responsibility for this, I just hired people that I thought I would enjoy hanging out with and liked and you know looked like me and, and you know, were my age, et cetera. And that's great if you want a bunch of friends, but that's not great if you're trying to run a business and build a company. And so ultimately I realized the, the error in my ways and, um, in 2013, we were able to hire kind of our first quote-unquote great hair hire, so someone who wasn't in the mid-20s. His name was Herb Jones. He's, he's our CMO. He's been our CMO since then. And just the, the experience he came with and the, the background and the confidence he had in the company, you know, born out of, you know, a background of doing this was really meaningful to us. You know, he came in October 2013, right at the beginning kind of, of our holiday season, and we basically said, listen, you've got one job, sales, right? Like you need to bring orders in the door. And, you know, he didn't bat an eye. He didn't blink. He wasn't overwhelmed or daunted. He said, okay, I get it. Let's, let's go make it happen. And uh, that mindset was really huge for us. So we kind of tried to use that as kind of a template for, for additional hires we needed to make. Of course, they've got to be a great cultural fit. And over the, over the course of the past couple of years, we've, we've been really able to put together a strong team that I think the best thing I can say about us is, and them is that we've always, in my opinion, punch above our weight. So we're, we're a really small team, but I think what we've been able to pull off with the, with the leanness of the team we have has been you know, really commendable. And, you know, kind of aside from hiring the right people, is there something you can attribute to that notion of, of punching above their weight? What is it that, that kind of allows them to do that? You know, I think a lot of it was, you know, in the early days, there really wasn't a week or a month that went by where I didn't consider uprooting the company and moving it elsewhere or, you know, or and where I wasn't suffering from like this FOMO, this fear of missing out about in terms of would the, the pastures be greener if we were located in, you know, fill in the blank city. And ultimately what I realized was that was a really good blessing. And that was a huge blessing in disguise for us because it allowed us to put our heads down and, and filter out the noise and just stay gritty and stay humble and work. And that mentality really, I think, embodies kind of a lot of fracture spirit and that i think has a direct impact on you know what you pointed out in terms of being able to punch above our weight you know, we, we don't get caught up in trying to you know measure ourselves on vanity metrics that other other companies might in terms of you know 
maybe top line growth without considering profitability or cash flow or things like that. So we, we really, I think, just in many ways kept to ourselves and, you know, kept repeating to ourselves the mantra of what mattered to us instead of, you know, kind of what mattered to the outside world and having that be impressed upon us. So if you could describe kind of what Fractures Culture is about, I mean, is there, is there an overriding sense as, as to what you're looking for and a teammate that you hire as far as a cultural fit? Yeah. So, you know, we have kind of what we call our core values and those are grit, drive, radical candor, camaraderie. And this one's going to sound, I guess, a little nerdy, but efficiency. And, you know, ultimately we want someone who, who embodies those characteristics or is, is, has demonstrated the willingness to um, internalize those characteristics. And uh, again, we, we take it as a bit of a chip on our shoulder that we're located in Gainesville, Florida, and we want to do as much as possible for the local ecosystem. So we've always prioritized and preferred hiring locally, hiring from the region to build the talent here. And it, even, even when they move on from Fracture, we know that we, we've net added better people into the, into the talent pool and ecosystem here in, in Gainesville and Florida. So yeah, we're, we're, we're doing everything we can to you know, build the best talent for us. Uh, I understand the company just had its 1 millionth order. Is that right? Yeah, so we, we had our one millionth order at, uh, I believe, 11.49 p.m. on Sunday night. Uh, wow, congratulations. Thank you, yeah. My, my business intelligence team whipped up this really neat infographic, and I, I thought it was really telling because, you know, I think anyone would be really excited to accumulate 250,000 orders in about 250 days, which is what we had done, you know, most recently. You, you know, you zoom back and, and, and rewind a little bit, and you realize it took us... Uh, about 2,700 days to get our first 250,000 orders. And it really makes you appreciate the fact that there's really no such thing as an overnight success. Like, sure, we've been able to, I think, build a flywheel and generate some momentum over the past three, four years. But none of that would have been possible without, like, the grueling, really strenuous journey of the first seven to eight years that uh, kind of made all this possible. Well, I thought it was an interesting bookend because looking at some of your earlier blog posts, you know, you had a blog post when you crossed over the 100,000th order yeah, yeah. and talked about in that blog post about, no, I, I want to get to the millionth order. And, you know, I, I kind of wonder for you, how do you feel the company is different now that you are at the 1 millionth order versus where you were at when you were at the 100,000th order? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, don't, I don't know if I've given myself the time to reflect and, and on that. Um, I'm bad at doing that. but. In many ways, I think we're the same, which is a double-edged sword, right? Like, I like the fact that I think we've maintained the same mindset and same mentality of kind of being the underdog and, and wanting to keep striving for our 10 millionth order now and not being complacent because we hit a, a nice round number like a million. But I think the other edge of that is that, you know, we need to mature and we need to grow and we need to put the processes and systems in place to be able to handle an additional 9 million orders because what got us to uh, 1 million just simply won't be able to sustain us to get us to 10 million. So I, I think, you know, w w I'm going to try and be selective and, and try and keep all the things that were super helpful in terms of, you know, spirit and values, but realize that we've got to grow up and continue to grow um, and, and mature to be able to handle the next 9 million orders. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, it seems like, especially with the products company, it's a little bit harder to scale up to that, you know, 9 millionth order, 9 million more orders. So I guess, what are the next steps as far as kind of scaling up to that point? Yeah, and I think that summarizes very well the next phase for us, which is investing in the company to put the right foundation in place for us to get the next 9 million orders. I think one of the things we've always done is 
we jumped off a cliff without necessarily having figured out how to fly yet. And, and so like we're building those wings on the way down and that that's great for a, a startup that's hungry and, and, and trying to prove itself. But I believe we've passed that startup phase and are now kind of in that maturing company phase, which isn't a bad thing at all. I don't think we're stodgy or old or anything like that. So now it's, I think for the first time ever, we've got the luxury of, okay, we know we have runway. Let's figure out how to put in the right investment, the right infrastructure and build that, build that foundation for the next, you know, 9 million orders. So for us, it's really all about investment. We don't want to be reactive and kind of do this in a piecemeal fashion because that's why it took us 11 years. And I'm, I'm, I have no regrets about it doing so, but I think we can get the next 9 million orders in a much more you know, expeditious fashion. So with a million orders, I imagine you see uh, some interesting things come off the production line. Are there any particularly memorable prints that, that stand out to you over the years? Oh man, there, there are a ton. I don't know how many of them we could actually discuss, but you could probably guess the top five categories, right? It's babies, you know, weddings, sunsets, puppies, and more babies, which is what people take photos of in terms of you know, their family, their loved ones, where they go, events that are that matter to them. And so it's incredible to see just really incredible images people take. It feels really neat to almost get a glimpse into people's lives. And people are sharing some very personal, sentimental moments with us. It gives what we do meaning because people are willing to share with us you know, things that are profoundly you know, deep to them. And that, that's always nice to, to see. Well, I think it's interesting because you mentioned at the beginning that we're in an era where people take so many photos. But by the time I think it gets to a, a fracture print, it, you know, this is this is a photo that has, you know, even more meaning to that that individual. This is something that they want to encapsulate forever. So I imagine you see some of the best of the best or at least what's most important to them. So I want to go back to kind of as you were talking about growing the company and reaching that next step, because it reminded me of something that I saw on your Twitter feed a while back. You talked about company size is a challenge and not an excuse. Mm -hmm. I believe at the time it was in relation to really maintaining connections with your team. And so I wondered if you could speak to that. I mean, how do you execute on that as your company continues to grow and get larger? How do you maintain that connection with the people that are working for you and that you work with? So uh, in a couple of ways. So number one, I think it's by actively being really thoughtful about the number of people you have in the company, right? So yes, growth is necessary. But oftentimes I, I feel like a lot of companies, you know, we talk about vanity metrics. Oftentimes people add headcount just because it sounds cool to say I have 100 people or 200 people working through company. And so, you know, quantity doesn't always correlate or equate with quality. So the first thing first, you know, we, we always try and be really thoughtful and selective about the hires we make. And I think in that way, we've been able to maintain a relatively low headcount, which naturally makes it easier to maintain more one-on-one -on -one connections and relationships. But with the people that we do have, honestly, Trevor, I just think it's about making the effort and not leaving anything to chance or making any assumptions. So, you know, I am here, you know, even in this new COVID era, I'm here at the office because I want people to see me. I want people to know that I'm here, um, that I'm not just in an ivory tower kind of commanding from upon high. And I think just do, doing the small things like you know, walking through the production floor, you know, reaching out to people on Slack, just checking in, you know, setting yourself a reminder, checking on people. I think it's the small things and more nuanced things that really add up and compound over time to build a sense of genuine and authentic camaraderie because I think people are very smart and your workers and your employees and your team are smart. They can tell the difference between something that's a forced interaction and, and something that's more genuine and real. So I think it's really the small things that, that do take time, 
but have such an incredible payoff if you are consistent with them. Yeah, and I'm thinking about that. You, you say, you know, it takes time and you have to be invested in, in these teams. And I think about kind of the other challenges that you talked about. And it leads me to this question about, you know, I understand being a founder and CEO of a startup is really challenging and all-consuming. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts about how you maintain that balance between the demands of your job, the demands of life outside of the company, how you find that balance and how you kind of make the success of this company, I guess, more personally valuable because you have time outside of the company as well. I think this is a really interesting topic where my perspective has evolved over time. I started this as a single, like I said, a single person with nothing to lose, no family to take care of, no debt. Now I am a father, I have a family, et cetera. So things have changed. But if I'm being candid, I don't think you can do this while always maintaining balance. I think you ultimately, at some points in time in the company, do have to give up balance because that's oftentimes what it takes. I, but I think trying to always find this perfectly steady equilibrium is very difficult, if not impossible. I think what you have to be upfront with yourself and your family and your loved ones about is like, listen, if I'm going to sign up for this, there's going to be some points in time where there's not going to be a lot of balance and I'm going to have to go all in. But then there's going to be other points in time where I can shift more to being available and, and actively part of the family and, and life outside of work. It's a continuous kind of seesaw and a, a very dynamic situation. So there are definitely small things you can do to maintain balance, right? Like there's always some things that you want to have in your life, be it hobbies or habits or small breaks that you use. But in, in the big picture, I think it's hard to always try and find this perfect balance. And ultimately, you might be searching for something that doesn't exist. And this is only, you know, one man's perspective, right? And I look back at my journey and my co-founder, and we definitely were not balanced early on because that's what it took. You know, we had to burn the candle at both ends and we really pushed ourselves really hard. And we, you know, even the ratio of work that my co-founder did to what I did was oftentimes imbalanced at times because that's just what it took. So I think biggest thing has to be like very genuine and self-aware communication, both with yourself when you kind of look at yourself in the mirror, but also with, you know, the people who, who you impact on a daily basis. So like, listen, this is what we're getting into. And this is what it's probably going to mean from a balance perspective. It's not going to be this way forever. You know, this is what it's going to look like for the next foreseeable future. Yeah, I think that's really important. And a couple of key points that at least resonate with me is this idea that people kind of beat themselves up trying to find a balance with the understanding that it's somehow always going to be in that sense of equilibrium. But really, it is just this challenge of understanding that sometimes you're going to have to be all in on one side and all in on the other side. And just finding a way not to fall to one side or the other too often, I guess. That's the balance. It's not that it's equal time all the time. It's just over the span of your life, have you found that something that works for you? Exactly. Yeah. So you touched on it a little bit early on about your, your investors being super patient with you kind of at the early stage. Has your relationship with your investors over time changed or, or is there other things that you've learned kind of through working with outside investors? Yeah, I mean, our, our relationship has definitely changed, especially as the needs and the phase of the business has changed and the business has evolved and matured. You know, again, the biggest thing that I'm grateful for is that the investors believed in us enough to give us the rope to be able to grow and get us to this point. And again, where they've been really demanding has changed over time, right? So, you know, it used to be, you know, more on showing any sort of progress now to fine tuning and, and optimizing profits and, and team growth. 
it, it's really powerful to have someone hold you accountable, even if you consider yourself the CEO or the boss. I think it's really powerful to feel that sense of accountability to someone or something. Otherwise, you know, everyone has an ego and you can let that get to your head. That sense of accountability, that sense of professionalism has been something that the investors have really harped on me. Um, and not that they've kind of called me out on it, but it's expected of me. And, and I appreciate that expectation. So yeah, every, every set of investors is different. Every person is different. What they're looking for is different. But, you know, they, they've entrusted me with their money and that's a big responsibility. So uh, and without that, we would not be here. So, you know, I take my responsibility to them, you know, very seriously. So if you were starting out as your kind of your business from the outset and there was one piece of advice or, or something you wish you had known about working with investors kind of from the early stages of your company, is there something that stands out to you or? Yeah. So I think there are two pieces. Number one, know your worth, right? Like, I'll specifically kind of uh, admit to this. I was incredibly intimidated and um, nervous about working with investors because I'm like, oh man, here are these people who do this for a living. I'm this 21-year-old, 22-year-old. I've never done this before. And I think in many ways, I was oftentimes too deferential and, and, and too willing to just say yes and do whatever they, they expected of me. But this is a partnership where we are equals working together because they believe in me. I have something they want. They have something I want, right? And you, you always need to remember Know, your power and, and, and your leverage. And I think that's something that most people forget, it's especially first-time founders, I will say. I think the other one, I think is just more communication. Don't hold anything back. Investors want to know everything. Show them the works, show them the skeletons in your closet. They're here to help. Hold nothing back. I think that's the only way you can develop a true, genuine relationship with your investors. Show your emotion, show your passion, obviously in a professional way. And again, we talk about balance, right? Like investors, especially in early stage ventures, know that this isn't a nine to five job. They know that they need to be on quote unquote call, potentially on nights or during weekends. And they, they know what they're signing up for, right? So really lean into that and, and push them to um, help you the way you want to be helped. It could be resources, network, you know, diligence, et cetera. So know your worth as a founder, what you're bringing to the table and, and just really be transparent. So more generally, uh, what would you say is the best piece of advice that you've received about running a company? I don't know if I've necessarily specifically received this advice, but one piece of advice that I've realized is really important is to not have any notions of how quickly you think this is going to go or um, how long you think this is going to take. In my opinion, if and when you start a company, you need to be willing to commit the next 10 to 15 years of your life to it at a bare minimum. And I fundamentally did not have that opinion early on. And I suffered from it because I always made uh, decisions from a very short-term perspective. And in, in my opinion, that's just not how the best, most enduring, most impactful companies are made. And so, you know, dismiss any notion of a timeline or like, needing to you know, exit by this point in time, or whatever the case may be. Or if you do have those, realize that those are all subject to change very quickly. Uh, just go in knowing that, um, Everything's going to take longer than you think it will and be prepared kind of for the long haul. That's interesting because I imagine it's got to be a hard, something to kind of hold in balance, this idea of that I'm in it for the long haul and that long haul maybe 15 years, but at the same time, sprinting and running and growing, trying to you know grow the biggest company you can in a smart and sensible way and being prepared that, hey, it may take off in five years and we want to be ready for that and holding those two intention. I mean, is, is that a challenge or do you just hold on to all of your plans loosely and just go with things as they come? Yeah, no, it is a challenge and there is a tension there, but I think you put it best, right? Because 
it's, it's just fundamentally not feasible to sprint for 15 years, right? Like you can sprint for bits and periods of time, but then you have to regulate your pace and, and, and the speed at which you're running this thing. And this thing is, is, is a marathon. And so again, I, you have to read the room and get a sense for when a sprint is necessary, but you have to work at a company at a very sustained pace. And that doesn't mean, you know, you take it easy, whatever the case may be, but you just have to realize when it's time to kick things up a notch because, you know, the, the moment demands it. And meeting the moment from a pace perspective is a skill that you develop over time. And again, I've only, I think, begun to develop it because now I have a 10 plus year journey to reflect on that I have various experiences that I can kind of draw from. Um, and I think that is something that comes over time. So I want to move to the flip side of this now. Any particularly bad pieces of advice that you've received, either unsolicited or solicited? <laughs> any, any bad pieces of advice? Yeah, and I, I think there are a couple. And it's not necessarily by any one person, but it's more of what an, an impressionable young founder may, may see or hear from the media or what's kind of captured in the media. There's no one perfect style of leadership. There's no one perfect style of communication. You know, there's a certain archetype, uh, a business owner or entrepreneurial archetype that is lionized in the media, right? It's the, the Steve Jobs kind of swashbuckling entrepreneur who takes no prisoners and kind of is very extroverted and, and authoritative and, and, and does things their way or the highway sort of thing. And I tried to be that, but it did not work. That just was not me. And it kind of failed miserably. And so I think the thing that I thought I needed to do was act and behave a certain way versus just being myself. So I think that's just something I would encourage, for, especially first-time founders, to realize is that there is no archetype for being a leader, right? Like it really takes a lot of, again, self-reflection to understand who you are, what are your communication strengths and weaknesses, and, and then going about developing them versus trying to model yourself after this one person whose context could have been completely different. You never know that other person's story until you really get a chance to walk a mile in their shoes, and that's just very hard to do. So I think I fell prey to that and, and succumbed to that. But fortunately, I think I've begun to work myself out of that. Well, it's interesting. It goes back to what you said earlier about understanding your value. You know, I think you were talking about that in the context of the company, but really as a founder, as a CEO, understanding your unique value in that leadership role, I think is important as well. And understanding that you don't have to be anybody else. You just have to be you and make that work for your business. Yeah. Well, so now I, I guess it's your turn. So we are the Founder Shares podcast. And I always like to ask our guests, you know, if, if they had one or two pieces of advice that they'd want to share with, you know, a young entrepreneur or somebody who's at home thinking about starting this business that they've had in the back of their mind for a while, you know, what's, what's that piece of advice that you'd want to offer to that person? Oh, well, I guess a couple of things. Number one, don't fall prey to the latest, greatest shiny object in terms of the sort of company you need to run the type of leader you need to be, just be true to yourself and that'll go a very long way. I, I think a more, a more uh, concrete piece of advice is, I wish more, more companies kind of behave in this manner. You need to be able to control your own destiny. And, I, and by that, I mean financially. Learn what it takes to run a profitable cash flow positive business. I think that's so important, especially in the direct-to-consumer sector because you know, over the past, not just you know, since COVID, started but over the past year the highway uh, has, is, is littered with companies who were high flying valued incredibly highly uh, took on a ton of money bought on a bunch of impressive a-list investors but are now dead 
or, or dying because they did not understand what it means to, to run a, a sustainable business. And there's nothing unsexy or uncool about building a strong, profitable business that gives you optionality in terms of where you want to go with it next. But um, so many investors and so many founders get excited about raising money and it's a means to an end and it is a great milestone, but it's only ever that, right? It's a milestone. It shouldn't be seen as an ultimate indicator of success. So I think being able to control your own destiny financially, learning the ins and outs of, you know, things that may not sound like a lot of fun, like accounting and financial discipline are just so vitally important that I wouldn't want people to dismiss that. And how do you, I mean, how do you go about learning those things? I mean, are you just reading constantly? You're surrounding yourself with a network that advises you on it. I mean, what are some of the strategies you've adopted to learn all these different skills that you need for this, you know, do what you just talked about? Yeah. So for me, I think admittedly, desperation was a phenomenal teacher, right? Like I dove into the deep end and in order for me to survive, I had to figure out how to navigate around QuickBooks and how to speak to speak and, and learn the vernacular to be able to talk to accountants and engineers and, and developers and customer support staff. But I think the beauty about the age we live in today is so much information is at your fingertips. If you want to understand what accounting looks like and, and how to prepare yourself, there's no excuse for you not to be able to do so, right? There's so many online courses, so many online institutions, YouTube. I mean, if there's anything under the sun that gives you the arsenal and the ammunition to be able to do so, uh, you just have to really uh, commit yourself to, again, don't get frustrated if you don't learn CPA level accounting in one night, but, you know, take the time and really um, persist and have the discipline to build out a process for how you're going to learn something. It took me and it is still taking me over you know, 11 years, uh, which I still kind of am shocked at when I hear that number. I mean, I think it's all great advice and, you know, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm excited to see what's next for you, what's next for Fracture, and it's just been um, a great conversation today, so I appreciate you sharing the time. That was Abhi Lokesh, co-founder and CEO of Fracture. You can find out more about Fracture by visiting FractureMe.com. That's Fracture, F-R-A-C-T-U-R-E-M-E.com. And if you've made it this far in the show, we have something special for you. Write a review of our show wherever you listen to the podcast. By the end of March, you'll be eligible to receive a free Fracture print. Send us a screenshot of your review to podcast at hutchlaw.com. That's podcast at h-u-t-c-h-l-a-w.com. And we'll choose a winner at the end of the month. And for everyone else who's not selected, we'll send you a coupon for 15% off your next purchase at Fracture. And be sure to listen next month and we'll have a promotion where we'll give away magic eight balls. So tune in and you'll know how to win. If you're a founder or business owner and need legal advice, we'd love to hear from you. You can start by visiting our website at hutchlaw.com. That's H-U-T-C-H-L-A-W.com. We have the capacity to help you out with just about any legal need your company may be facing. We're passionate about the innovation economy and ready to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Trevor Schmidt, and we'll talk to you next time on the Founder Shares Podcast.